All right, y'all, welcome to the last evening of uh, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. Um, David and I were just talking. We've had a great time doing this. David especially had a great time last week when he wasn't here. Uh, keep, keep getting food if you want. I'm going to tell you how, how it's going to go tonight. Um, I'm still feeling a little bit under the weather, weather and I need to get on a, a plane tomorrow morning at 6.40 for Iowa. So that's sort of a double whammy, if, if you know what I mean. Um, and so what I'm going to do is I'm going to do my part and then I'm going to skate and then David and Steph, uh, David will finish it up and David and Stephanie will kind of close things down. Please keep getting food as you go. Um, I, this cold, how many of you have had this cold thing that's been going, and this has been not pleasant. It's one of the worst colds I ever had. I, Monday I actually went out and bought cough syrup. I felt like a little boy. It was so weird. You know, oh, and it's so nasty, too. And it doesn't have the alcohol content that it did when I was in high school, which was very disappointing. So, yeah, so very, very disappointing. Anyway, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you just the background of the, of the Old Testament book and prophet of Amos. Just the background. Uh, and then I'm going to talk a little bit about the Psalms, um, which I think are important also. And then um, David's going to talk about Deuteronomy. And I know some of you might be thinking, why so much in the Old Testament? And here's why. Uh, One of the things that I found in talking to people about approaching the Bible is that um, they sort of get the New Testament, but the the Old Testament is like just very complicated and difficult. And and, and it's one of the the most, they, they just, they don't even want to try it, okay? Uh, the problem with that is that the Old Testament is just rich with history, and if you don't really understand the Old Testament, the New Test- you, you don't get the fullness of the New Testament. And so what we want to do tonight is demonstrate that, that the Old Testament is accessible to anybody, number one, and number two, even a book like Deuteronomy is accessible, okay? Uh, I know that um, some of you like maybe you've tried that read through the Bible in a year and you start in Genesis and you're fine up until about um, Exodus 23 and then you give up. And, and I understand that, but I will tell you that I'm at a point now, it just, it took a lot of determination, um, but I'm at a point now where I enjoy reading books like Leviticus and Numbers, things like that. Now, that takes a while to get to, I understand, um, but as you learn more and more about the history of the Jewish people and the Old Testament and all that, you begin to appreciate what is going on in some of those um, drier sections of the Old Testament. But there are other sections of the Old Testament that read better than any uh, contemporary novel that you could ever possibly read. Uh, here's a recommendation for you. If you take notes, write this down. We don't have the thing out today, but take, write this down. If you've never really approached the Old Testament and you want to know what would be uh, good to read in the Old Testament, here, here's, uh, here's, you're going to have some gaps, but I think this would be helpful. Read Genesis. It's, it's wonderful. Um, it's, there's some parts in there that you're going to have to kind of slug your way through. Um, very short parts, though. It's not like Leviticus where you have to slug your way through the entire book. But read Genesis. And especially those last 14 chapters are just magnificent about Joseph, okay, and that whole thing. And you get to read about the amazing Technicolor dream coat and all that stuff. Um, then, you know, Exodus is, is, is good, but, you, you, you know, maybe read the first, I don't know, 
20 chapters of Exodus. But then really, you could go Genesis, and then here you go. Read First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. Those, those are just historical narratives about the, um, the kingdom of Israel. Up until um, 1 Samuel, uh, Israel was not a kingdom. It was a nation, but it was not led by kings. And I'll talk a little bit about that tonight. And you can see that we have the divided kingdom map up there, and we'll talk a little bit about that because it pertains to Amos. But, but Genesis, then First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and then... Um, uh, just always be in Proverbs and Psalms. I, I, my, my pitch tonight when I get into Psalms is that every day you should read one or two Psalms, unless it's Psalm 119. Then you should read a couple pages of Psalm 119 every day, okay? Because that one's a really, it's 176 verses. It's longer than half the books in the New Testament, Psalm 119 is. Um, but you should be in the Psalms every day. I'm in the Psalms and Proverbs virtually every day. Those are just great books, uh, um, great areas of the Bible to be in every day. Uh, and so if you read that stuff, you're going to get used to reading Old Testament stuff and, and you're going you're to get good at it. You're going to get confident and it's going to be very helpful to you. You're, you're going to get stuff right away that you can use in your, in your life. Um, and then I, I know some of you are like, you're leaving out the prophets. I love the prophets, you know. I do too. I'll tell you, <coughs> excuse me, um, Last year's study break, I take a week off in May. To just, I, I go to uh, this little town in Wisconsin, and uh, I have no media, nothing, no people I know, nothing for a week, and I just read. And um, I read Jeremiah straight through on one of the days, and it was just magnificent. Isaiah and Jeremiah are just incredible uh, to read. And I, and I know that they're, at times they're hard to understand, but you just got to kind of keep at it, and, and they're really beautiful books to be able to read. Okay, so anyway, that's kind of our my pitch on on the Old Testament, and then you just kind of ex- expand from there. Let me talk a little bit about Amos. So Amos is um, a prophet in in the Old Testament. We have major prophets and minor prophets. The minor prophets are shorter. The major prophets are like um, uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Uh, Daniel is considered either a major or minor, depending on. Um, who you talk to. Amos is certainly a minor prophet because it's a little bit shorter. It's, it's nine chapters. But the history behind every prophet is very rich. And if you don't understand the history, the contextual background of the book, you're never going to understand how to read the prophet. But once you understand that and you start reading the book, it's, it's really interesting. Really good stuff. So uh, all of this, again, all of it, we're not going to read the book of Amos, but I'm going to do the background stuff like I did last week on Philippians. Um, all of this stuff, again, is coming simply from this study Bible. So you don't need anything else to be able to get all of this background information, which will help you to understand Amos and read it. So um, uh, the author and title, I'm just going to read the short little paragraph from the study Bible on the author, on the author and title. The first, book of, uh, the first verse of the book identifies it as the work of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa. Nothing else is known about Amos apart from what he says about himself in chapter 7, verses 14 and 15. There, Amos insists that he is not a prophet by profession, but a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. Any dressers of sycamore figs here? Anybody do that for a living? Okay. He's a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs whom God entrusted with the special task of carrying a divine message to the people of the northern kingdom. So 
there's two interesting things that you get out of there. Number one, he's not a prophet by, by uh, profession. In other words, God called him out of just what, what, what we all do in the marketplace. He just called him out of the marketplace and said, you're going to be my special messenger to the leadership of Israel uh, to tell them some really bad news. So, you know, if, if people kill messengers, you're in trouble. But I think that's interesting. He didn't, he didn't go to seminary. He didn't have any special training, nothing like that. He's just a shepherd and a dresser of sycamore figs, whatever that is, okay? The second thing it tells us is that he was um, a prophet in the northern kingdom. What does that mean? We'll unpack that. And, and um, the, the study Bible helps unpack it too. So the date, the date this was written was somewhere around 750 BC. There's speculation about when it was, maybe it was 760, maybe more like 740. But most people just say, well, it's somewhere around 750 BC. But that's important because it gives us a historical context, okay? Um, 450 years earlier, in the year 1200 BC, the, the kingdom of Israel was established. They had been doing, uh, doing it by the system of judges up until that time. And then, and then um, the people cried out and said, we want a king like all the other nations. We want a king. And God said, no, you don't want a king. You don't want to be like other nations. You have me. And they said, no, we want to be like other nations. We want a king. And he said, all right, you wanted a king. You got a king. And then he turned it into a, a, a kingdom. And the first king was who? Saul, and then David, and things went really well under David, and then Solomon, and they, they became the world's superpower under Solomon. Things were great under Solomon. And then in 920, around 922 B.C., Solomon died. And his two sons take over, and his two sons are rat finks, and they end up getting into a big fight, and the kingdom of Israel splits. And from uh, 922 B.C. on, it looks like this. For the next 200 years, it looks like this. Israel is in the north. Ten tribes go to the north with Israel, and Judah is in the south. Two tribes go to the south, and I believe the tribes were Judah and Benjamin that went to the south. To the south. But you'll notice that Jerusalem is in the southern kingdom. Samaria is in the northern kingdom. Okay? So we have for about uh, 200 years, we have a split kingdom, okay? They couldn't get along. They didn't like each other, all right? So that's interesting. So Israel goes until 722, and then the Assyrians come in from the north, and they knock them out. We'll talk a little bit more about that. Uh, in the south, Judah, Judah goes until 605-ish, Actually, Babylon comes in and attacks them in 605, 597, and 587 B.C. And the king that attacks them is Nebuchadnezzar. And you know Nebuchadnezzar from the book of Daniel. Okay? And, and the, um, the prophet of Daniel and the prophet of Ezekiel, the prophet of Jeremiah, are all Judah's prophets talking about the exile, the Babylonian exile. Jeremiah talks about um, uh, the time leading up to the Babylonian exile. Da Daniel and uh, Ezekiel describe the time during the Babylonian exile. And then Jeremiah also writes the book of Lamentations, which is him lamenting over the city of Jerusalem after the Babylonians destroy it. Okay? This is all fascinating history. I get kind of jazzed up about this, okay? So I hope some of that enthusiasm rubs off on you. Uh, all of the prophets deal with these times primarily of the divided kingdoms, warning Israel and Judah, the leaders of both of them, that you're in trouble if you don't, if you don't follow God the way you're supposed to. You're going to get in trouble. That's the job. 
fortune tellers. They're not, they're not, you know, saying, ooh, I can see into the future. They're merely doing what any person who has some biblical knowledge and, and understanding of God will They'll say, this is what God wants you to do. You're doing this over here. Here's what's going to happen to you. It's not that difficult to do that. But certain ones of them were called especially to carry that message to the leaders. So here's another little part um, that I would read from, uh, from the... Oh, uh, that's the date. Here's the theme. Let me just read the theme to you. The theme of, of Amos is the universal justice of God. The Israelites clearly expected a day of the Lord when judgment would happen and all of their enemies would be judged. What they were not prepared for was that the judgment on that day would also fall on them as well. They were not prepared for that. And Amos is a book about that. Uh, Far from enjoying favored status, they would be held even more accountable than those who would also be judged. Okay? So this is a, Amos is actually kind of a funny book to read, and I'll get into that in just a second. Here's the occasion, purpose, and background. Israel was about to be judged by God with Assyria being the instrument of God's judgment. Assyria is a nation up to the north and just a little bit to the east of where Israel is. And, and what's interesting about that is that Israel had no idea that this was going to happen to them because um, Israel had fallen on, some, I mean, um, Assyria had fallen on some hard times, and Israel was actually doing really well economically. Does this sound familiar? They were doing really well economically. So the leaders of Israel had gotten around 750, 740 BC, had gotten smug and arrogant. They had so much wealth, they thought they were invincible, and it seemed as though they were being blessed and not getting closer to wrath, okay? Now, let me ask you something. How good are you when you, things are going well circumstantially in your life how good are you at hearing a message that says things aren't going to be so good very in, in a very short period of time? We don't like to hear that. We're not very good at hearing that, right? <coughs> so let me, let me read this now from the intro. But in fact, their present wealth, Israel's present wealth and power, was not evidence of the blessing of God. As Amos conclusively showed in his book, they were actually under the curse of God because of their egregious breaches of their covenant with God. Much of their wealth had been amassed at the expense of the poor, whom the rich and powerful were systematically oppressing. Their worship of God was little less than attempts at magical uh, manipulation of God, much like the religion of their pagan neighbors. So Amos comes along and says, this is a problem. So here's what's going on. Let's say he wrote it in 750. Historically, we know from other historical documents, that Assyria was, was not very powerful in 750. They had had some problems. They had been powerful. They had lost their power. And so Israel was thinking, well, we don't have to worry too much about Assyria. But then in 745, some internal changes were made in Assyria, and they became very powerful again. And the next thing you know, they're a dominant world power again. And then in 722, they invade and blow up Israel. And what I mean by blow up Israel is when they invaded, their idea with captured people is that they would, they would fragment the people and they would get them to intermarry, okay? So they brought Assyrians in to Israel and had them intermarry with Jews and they took Jews out of Israel and had them go and intermarry with all kinds of other peoples. They were trying to dilute those people, okay? This is why, by the way, 
700 years later in Jesus' time, the Jews in Judah hated the Sumerians because this had become Samaria. Israel had become Samaria. They hated the Sumerians because they saw them as, quote, half-breeds. That's why they hated them. They wouldn't even go through Samaria if they had to go to Galilee. They didn't even like to do that. This is something that was 700 years old at that time. So if you start to understand this history, you begin to understand why, um, like the, the parable of the Good Samaritan, that's just radically offensive that Jesus would, would make the Samaritan the hero in that parable. It's just offensive to Jews that he would do that, okay? So in 722, they, they invade and blow them up. Now, when Babylon came in in 605, 597, and 587, they had a different idea with captured people. They would carry them off to Babylon and then place them in Babylon in their own section and leave them intact and let them still be Jewish. Thus preserving the Jewish race uh, with the Babylonian exile. So they had a different understanding of how they were going to treat conquered peoples. Okay? Um, now the structure of Amos is thus. Nine chapters, it's all judgment. The first six chapters are oracles. Oracles are like little sermonettes, five or six verse sermonettes that are proclaiming the coming uh, judgment of God. And they all start with this saying, thus saith the Lord, okay? Which the leaders of Israel were not going to listen to. Hey, Mr. Leader of Israel, thus saith the Lord. Whatever, get out of here. Bring me another fiddler. I want, I want to be entertained, okay? Now, chapters 1 and 2, um, well, chapters 1 and part of 2 are judgments against these other nations. This is just brilliant the way Amos does this. Judgments against the other nations. So he starts off by saying, hey, I'm Amos. I'm a shepherd in Tekoa, blah, blah, blah. And here you go. Um, uh, to, to the leaders of Tyre, these three things, no, these four things I ha- God has against you. He's speaking for God. These three things, no, actually these four things I have against you. Tyre is up in Phoenicia. Uh, to the leaders of Gaza, these three things, no, these four things I have against you and I'm going to judge you for it. Uh, to uh, the leaders of Aram, these three things, no, these four things I have against you and I'm going to judge you for it. The, to the leaders of Moab, to the leaders of Edom, okay, he's going all around Israel. And, 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 as, and, and you can just hear that the, the, the leaders of Israel, as Amos is proclaiming this, they're going, yeah, that's right. Preach it, my brother. Yes, my brother Amos, you're doing good. Yes, pass the plate right now because I'll be giving some money. That's right. Preach it, my brother. Those Presbyterians and Methodists, we can't stand them. Yes, that's right. Judge them, okay? And then in chapter 2, he says, Judah, these three or four things I have against you. And now the leaders of Israel are going, yeah, yeah, that's true too. Getting a little nervous, though. That's kind of close to home. I mean, they are still kind of our brethren. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Judge Judah, too. We're still good. And then, in chapter 2, verse 6, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke your punishment. Now they're going, Amos, get out of here. Bring the fiddlers back, okay? We're not interested in what you have to say. It's brilliant. They're going, yes, 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 yes. And then they're going, what, us too? Really? Okay. 
Um, from the intro, it says this. One can only imagine that Amos' Israelite hearers were very pleased with him up to this point. He was reinforcing exactly what they believed. Amos then details Israel's sins ranging from obsession to obscenity to ritualistic um, religion and more. And then he goes into these woe oracles. You know, Jesus did some woe oracles too. Woe to you. You know, every, let, let me tell you something. I, I would never want God or Jesus, either one of them, to start a sentence directed at me with woe to you. That's a problem, okay? And so we have these war, woe oracles and then visions of judgment. Um, the literary features of this book, just very quickly, it's prophecy, like I said, but not fortune-telling. Um, prophet, a prophet really, um, primarily their job was to say, here's what God wants, here's what you're doing, it doesn't match up, you're headed for a disaster. That's essentially what a prophet does. And we have prophets today in the church, and we need prophets today in the church. I've mentioned this before, one of our new elders, Josh Prather, is a prophet that's his giftedness. He's the guy that sits in meetings and says, listen, the church is doing this. Is that really what the church is called to do and what we're supposed to do? Have we examined Scripture? Have we prayed about this? Are we sure this is God's will? He's a prophet of the church that keeps us on track. And it's very uncomfortable to be a prophet because you're the one who's always kind of going, maybe you're not doing it right. Maybe you're not doing it right. You know? But if that's what the gift that God's given you, that's kind of the cross that you have to bear, okay? So there's oracles and sermonettes, and then this book is just filled with satire, which was one of my favorite uh, literary devices. Sat- I love satire. Love satire. It's, it's very um, sarcastic. It's, it, at one point, um, he uses, um, he, he says, you cows of Bashan. That can't be complimentary when he starts calling people cows of Bashan, Okay? Um, there's rhetorical questions, there's parallelism, there's parody, there's proverbial sayings. There are things called doom songs. These are little ditties that they would sing declaring the doom of Israel. Okay, I mean, I, I don't even know if we have a genre in music like it except heavy metal, right, David? So, um, <laughs> And then the book ends with these visions, these visions of destruction. Of, of Israel, okay? Um, and then let me just read you a couple more little parts. Uh, the, I think this is very helpful. The history of salvation summary. This is towards the end of the introduction to the book of Amos. God knew Israel out of all the families on earth and instituted Israel to be a place where righteousness and justice in both the private and public spheres would be on display for all mankind. Kind of sounds like the New Testament church, doesn't it? right? That's what we're called to also. The northern kingdom of Israel had rejected that calling and abused that privilege, and so God would punish them all the more severely for their unfaithfulness. And yet even this terrible judgment did not eclipse all hope. There would still come an heir of David in whom alone Israel and Judah and indeed all of the world would find peace and blessing. And his name is? It's not a trick question. Jesus. Haven't you ever heard that story? Okay, Sunday school, got the little kids there, and they go, okay, we got a question for you now. 
what's furry and has a long tail and collects nuts? And the little kid says, sounds a lot like a squirrel, but I'm going to say Jesus since we're in Sunday school. The answer is always going to be Jesus, okay? All right? And then the key themes. There's six key themes here. This is just really helpful to know as you start to read it. Number one, the Lord is the creator of the universe. Therefore, his ethical norms are universal. And all people are subject to judgment in light of them. That's true in the New Testament too, isn't it? Yes. Second, justice and righteousness in the treatment of other people is key evidence of a right relationship with the Lord. New Testament talks about fruit, okay? You, the, the world will know you by your love, okay? Three, religious ritual in the absence of just and righteous treatment of others is disgusting to God. If you're a scumbag six days of the week and then you come to church and raise your hands and give money, God's going, you know that supposedly fragrant offering, it makes me sick, Okay, he says that in Amos, okay? Number four, Israel's covenant with the Lord did not guarantee special protection for them when they broke the covenant. Rather, it meant that they would be held to a higher standard of obedience and would be subject to more scrutiny and judgment. Have you ever noticed that as a Christian, you're actually held to a higher standard um, than other people actually hold themselves to? God holds you to a higher standard too. That's part of the deal, okay? Number five, Thus, the day of the Lord would not be a time of miraculous de- uh, deliverance for unrepentant Israel. Rather, it would be a time of terrible destruction. And number six, yet a faithful remnant would be preserved and would someday see a, uh, a day of glorious restoration and blessing. So that's um, the book of Amos. And you could read Amos. It's a really short, simple read. And, and if you just armed with that information... Uh, you begin to realize uh, how much easier it is to read it. And by the way, if, you've, if you're here and you've never understood that at one time for 200 years, the kingdom of Israel was split into a northern and southern kingdom, that'll tell you a lot. Just that very simple little fact there will tell you a lot about how to read the different prophets. The first thing you want to ask, is this a prophet to Israel or is this a prophet to Judah? And then that'll help you set it historically uh, in context, Okay. Last thing I'm going to make a push for, and then I'm going to turn it over to David and give him the mic and everything, is the Psalms. The Psalms is the largest book, 150 Psalms, 150 chapters. Uh, A lot of them are written by David, and then there's some other guys that write them too, and some of them we just don't know who wrote them. David wrote probably 40, 45% of the Psalms. The Psalms, uh, uh, there are different types of Psalms. By the way, what does the word Psalm mean? Anybody know? Song. It's a song. This is what they would sing in church, these prayers. And they're prayers. They're songs and they're prayers. You want to know how to enrich your prayer life? Read the Psalms. Pray the Psalms. Okay? Just pray them. Um, and and uh, the, 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 there are different categories of Psalms, different types of Psalms. The um, most common type of Psalm, about 75% of them, about half of the Psalms, are, are, are what's known as a lament or a complaint. Something where somebody's not real happy with God. Some of you are worried about praying to God and, and offending Him. Read the Psalms. <laughs> You're going to be surprised at what people are willing to pray to God in the Bible. Okay, 
The reason the Psalms are so good is because um, they're real life. It's real life stuff. And it's very, very helpful to, um, uh, to read through them. So lament. So um, that's the most common type. And then you have others that are, you have thanksgiving psalms. You're just thanking God. You have a sh- psalms of assurance. You have psalms of royalty or enthronement, just praising God be- because he's king. Uh, you have psalms that um, recite salvation history, God working through his people. And then you have psalms of wisdom. Okay? So you have all these different psalms. Let me just read a couple to you very quickly and you'll get a flavor for this. So, for instance, Psalm 1. Look at Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor um, sits in the seat, seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. The word there for law could be translated just simply God's word. So the very first thing the Psalms tell you is that you're blessed if you're in his word. And you're not blessed if you're sitting around scoffing at God. It's a very, very simple thing to understand. He is like a tree, this man who, who reads God's word, or this woman who reads God's word is like a tree planted by streams of, of water. That would be a simile, right? You English majors, a simile is making a comparison using the words like or as, okay? If it was a metaphor, the psalmist would have said what? He is a tree, okay, right? So you understand, these are literary techniques, okay? He's like a tree planted by water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor the sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. That's a psalm of assurance, okay? Um, Some of you know Psalm 23, right? Let me just read it. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. The Psalms are real life. This, is, this sounds really great until you get to, to verse, it's like, oh, my life is going to be all cupcakes and muffins until you get to verse four. And then verse four is saying, guess what? This is real life stuff. You're going to have a hard time sometimes. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my oil, my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. One more. I read this a few weeks ago on Sunday morning. I couldn't help myself. It's my favorite psalm. If this isn't just like what so many of us wrestle with every single day, I don't know what is. It's Psalm 73. This is Asaph. Asaph needed to write more psalms. Are you ready, David? I'm done after this. This is my swan song. Okay. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But, (laughs) now we go into the lament, okay? Listen to this lament. As for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. 
Do you ever get envious of those who are arrogant and prideful? Do you ever get envious of those who are prospering by their wickedness? Yes, we all do. Um, Sean Myers texted me right before the Super Bowl. He said his three least favorite sports franchises in the world are the Seattle Seahawks, the New England Patriots, and the San Antonio Spurs. And then he says, why do the wicked prosper? (laughs) See, if you know the Psalms, you can have these jokes with your friends, okay? That's what we're after, is to make jokes out of the Psalms, yeah. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are sleek and fat. By the way, wouldn't you like to live in a time when if your body was sleek and fat, that meant that was, that was attractive? This, this was back when if you were sleek and fat, you were, they, they, they didn't have 24-hour fitness centers. They had jack-in-the-box on the corner of every, that's what, and Krispy Kreme donuts, okay? They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. Does this sound like anybody's boss? Sorry. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there, is, is there knowledge in the most high? They're making fun of God. God doesn't know. Look at me. I'm getting away with everything. Ha, ha, ha. Hey, God. You know? And they say, uh, behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, increased, increase in riches. All in vain, I've kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocent. Do you ever feel that way? I've been keeping my hands clean, my heart clean and pure, okay? And it's getting me nowhere. For all the day long, I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. If anything, that might be a good reason why you need to come to church on Sunday morning to get encouraged. That Jesus is real and that he's got your back. And that things may seem bad, but they're fine. He's got, they may be out of your control. Things are out of our control, but they're not out of his control. And then the rest of the psalm is just this, this magnificent crescendo. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall into ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes. O oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. Have you ever been a, like a beast towards God? Yeah, all of us have. And you know what? It's okay. He gets it. He can take it. You can complain to him. It's all right. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have, I, whom have I in heaven but you? Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail. My flesh and my heart fail all the time. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. 
but for me it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord my refuge that I may tell of all your works. It's great stuff. That's why you should read the Psalms every day. It's real life stuff. I'm done. I'll see you guys uh, next time I see you. Thanks. It's been a fun four weeks. And uh, now you get to have David finish you off with Deuteronomy. Good Lord. Good luck with that. Great. All right. So, a um, couple things. Um, we're going gu- to cover the background and sort of introduction overview of Deuteronomy. And Deuteronomy is one of those books that feels overwhelming. Like you, you know it's in your Bible, but you're kind of like, why is it there? What's the purpose of it? Um, I'm not going to dare read it. But it's an important book, and I want to talk about some of the reasons why I think it's important in the background and overview of it. You'll probably think that I'm, that Frank and I are like salesmen for, salesmen, (laughs) proper grammar, uh, for the ESV study Bible. We're not, but we really like it. And so Frank had his, I have mine. Um, What I have here, uh, as far as the background and overview goes, is literally taken from this. So if you don't have this, I would say get it. If, if I was going to get banished to a desert island and they said you can take three things with you, this would be one of the three. I'd probably take toilet paper and my rifle. Um, and, I mean, you've got to hunt to live, right? So, and for self-defense. Um, anyway, this, this is an important resource, and it's one of those things that it has so many tools in it that you don't, you don't have to feel like I've got to go out and have... Um, all kinds of commentaries and Bible dictionaries and Bible encyclopedias in order to get background information. You can, you can get so much helpful stuff from this. So if you don't have it, I would say get it. Um, and the cool thing is, is you can access it online once you do buy it. So let's talk about Deuteronomy. It's the fifth book of the Christian Bible. So it's early on in, in, our, in our Bibles. It's the last book of the Pentateuch. Pentateuch is what? Anybody remember? Yeah, it's the first five books of the Hebrew Old Testament. Um, they wouldn't call it the Old Testament. They would just call it the Pentateuch. And the, the Pentateuch covers really the story of the origins of Israel. We would date Deuteronomy between the 15th and 13th century BC. And most Christian scholars would say it was written by Moses. There's a big debate about who wrote it. And we're not going to get into the details of that because it's kind of boring. Um, but generally, it's accepted that Moses wrote Deuteronomy right before Israel entered into the promised land. So let's back up. Um, the story of Israel is what? They are slaves in Egypt, and God leads them out of Egypt, and he gives them his law, and what do they do? They disobey it, right? They, they're not interested in really trusting Yahweh. They want to do their own thing. Um, instead of Yahweh, they want to do my way, <laughs> right? That was, a fr- that was a frank joke for you. I'll tell you, I'll tell you a funny story real quick. So I got assigned a text when I was in, in college um, on Genesis 16 where, where Abram has to trust the Lord for the promise of a kid. And uh, he, instead of trusting the Lord, he impregnates his maidservant. And I had to preach on this text for my preaching class, and I titled my sermon, Yahweh or My Way. <laughs> and my professor legitimately marked me off for it. He was like, that's a terrible, terrible title. So <laughs> and he was right. I mean, it was really cheesy. So I, I earned the points marked off. 
So anyways, the context of this is that Israel has been led out of Egypt and yet they've disobeyed Yahweh over and over and over because they've done things their way instead of his way. And so after 40 years of wandering in the desert, they finally get to a place where they're going to enter the land that God had promised them. And so now Deuteronomy is Moses' sort of final um, sermon, if you will, to Israel as they're getting ready to enter the land. It recounts his words, um, and it could be considered sort of a farewell instruction or like a succession narrative because he's handing the torch off to this other guy, Joshua. There are two major events that form the substance of Deuteronomy. The long speech that Moses delivers affecting a renewal of the covenant and then the passing of leadership from Moses to Joshua. Um, It's the final book. Uh, It's a sermon, a large set of sermons preached by Moses to all of Israel shortly before his death, before the conquest of the land. The rhetorical style of the sermon motivates obedience, and you'll see this throughout Deuteronomy. We're not going to read all of Deuteronomy tonight. We're we're just going to read a couple of sections, do a little bit of exercise with it, and then we'll kind of wrap up. Um, but it, it, is, it is constantly reassuring them of God's faithfulness to them, his love for them. And then out of that, God's, res- God's request is that they would respond in obedience. That they would say, God has been faithful to us, even though we've been unfaithful to him. Let's, let's turn the ship. Let's be faithful to him, right? And so over and over there are these commands that in light of not, not live this way because I said so, but in light of my love for you, live for me, God says, throughout Deuteronomy. Um, what's the function of Deuteronomy in our Bible? Like, why is it there? I ask myself this a lot when I encounter what seems to me like obscure Old Testament books. Um, it's an important book for a couple reasons. It brings together the, the promises given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, what we call the, the patriarchal promises. Um, and it, it shows you the conclusion of the exodus and the wandering in the wilderness. And it's also a, a time of giving the, the law to Israel again that they had essentially forgotten. So when they were wandering for 40 years, what's one of the high points of their wandering? The Ten Commandments, right? The reception of the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai. They got the law, um, which was a a good thing for them to to have and to know how to operate, to know how to live. And they had abandoned this law and lived however they wanted. And so this is a second um, installment of that that law covenant. Deuteronomy literally means, deutero is Greek for like second and namos is Greek for law. So it's like second law, literally. It's their second reception of the law. Um, it's frequently quoted in the New Testament, most notably by Jesus in his wilderness temptations. So when Jesus in Matthew 4, um, also in, I think, Luke 4, when he's being tempted by the devil, um, the devil is quoting scripture out of context. Jesus quotes scripture back in context to refute Satan, and most of those are from Deuteronomy. Also, another New Testament book that quotes Deuteronomy a lot is Romans, which most of us are familiar with because we just as a church went through that recently. Um, the biggest and toughest question related to Deuteronomy for the Christian is how does it apply to us? Specifically the ethical commands because there's a lot of stuff in it that feels like 
how do, how do we make sense of that as, as Christians? And, and we'll get there. It's a complex issue, and there's not one rule that can just apply to all of the different laws in Deuteronomy, but there are guiding principles that will help us to make sense of some of those more complex questions. Um, one of the great things about Deuteronomy for us is to look at it from the backwards lens of Jesus, um, not to read Jesus into it, but to see how Jesus, to see how the sacrificial system pointed forward to Jesus. That is that the sacrifice of animals in the community of Israel all pointed forward to a time when there would be one true faithful Israelite who would actually live out God's law in completeness, in fullness, and that he would be the, the ultimate lamb, the ultimate sacrifice to atone for sin. So that's kind of an overview background of Deuteronomy. Let's go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. So we're going to start reading. And here's what I want for us to do. As you're turning there, we're going to go to Deuteronomy 1. We're going to read the first section together. Here's what I want us to do. Um, let's apply the three simple steps. And we'll start with that first one, which was observe. Um, we talked about this nights, uh, week one and week two. We talked about observe, interpret, apply. Over and over and over. This is what we do in how do we read the Bible? How do we, how do we understand the Bible? We start just by reading it, then we interpret it, then we apply it. Connected to those three things are, are these three questions. What does it say? What does it mean? And then, what does it mean to us? We've got to take those questions in that order. I remember when I became a Christian, I was hungry for God's word and I was 16 and there was this Bible study group that met and it was mostly adults and there were a few of us 15, 16 year olds there and we were just hungry for more of the Bible and we'd go to this and we'd have read a section of scripture the week before and then we'd go to the Bible study and we'd talk about it and the the leader of the group would, would ask us this question, what does this mean to you? What do you personally take away from this? And the adults always had these like really cool sounding answers and I never did because I didn't know what they meant. Like the, the biblical text, I had no idea what they meant. And it dawned on me over time, not when I was 16, but as I grew in my faith, it dawned on me that the, the question, what does it mean to you? What do you personally take away from it? Was asked too soon. Never in that Bible study were we encouraged to just ask simply, what does it mean? It was, instead, it was immediately, what does it mean to you? And I want for us to avoid that because if we're honest, our minds are sort of bent that way. Like we, we naturally sort of uh, ask that question. Well, how does, well, how does this speak to me? What am I getting out of this? It's a good question to ask. I'm not saying don't ask it, but we have to ask it at the end. So um, let's read. And let's do observation. So this is where I want for you guys to be involved. So don't be shy. Um, speak up. I'm going I'm to ask. I'm not going to ask specific names, but I want to hear your thoughts as we work through this first section of Deuteronomy together. Let's just make observations. Not, we're not asking what it means yet. Just simply, I see this. Okay? So uh, Deuteronomy 1, verse 1. These are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel beyond the Jordan in the wilderness, in the Arabah, opposite Suf, between Paran and Tophel, Laban, Hazaroth, and Dizahab. It is 11 days journey from Horeb by this way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. In the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month, Moses spoke to the people of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him 
in commandment to them. After he had defeated Sion, the king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth, and in Edrai. Beyond the Jordan, in the land of Moab, Moses undertook to explain this law, saying, The Lord our God said to us in Horeb, You have stayed long enough at this mountain. Turn and take your journey, and go to the hill country of the Amorites, and to all their neighbors in the Arabah, in the hill country, and in the lowland, and in the Negeb, and by the sea coast, the land of the Canaanites, and Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. See, I have set the land before you. Go in and take possession of the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give to them and to their offspring after them. All right, so what do we see? There are no, there's no trick questions here, just simple observations. What do you see? Say again. So these are the words of Moses. Okay, it's a good start. Lots of names of places. Yeah, places that sound strange. Yeah, geography seems important. Specific times and dates. Yeah, for, what was it? Fortieth, fortieth year on the first day of the eleventh month. I find myself asking the question. 40th year in relation to what other years? But then that's an interpretive question, and I want to pause. I just want to observe, right? It's hard to just observe. We, we automatically want to interpret, which is good. We're just not there yet. Not, not, by the way, not that I have a solution of when that 40th year was in reference to other years. <laughs> but yeah, what are other observations we see? Lord is speaking through Moses. Lord is speaking through Moses. Giving, direction. Giving direction. Yeah. And it's to Israel. Okay. This is really good, really important observations. What else do we see? Where do you see a promise? Verse 8. See, I have set the land before you. Go in and take possession of the land that the Lord swore to your fathers. Hmm, okay. It's good. Other other observations. They defeated a king already. Yeah. Yeah. That's a bit of an interpretation, but okay, we'll take it. They've seen some action. Yeah. No, that's good. I'm just I'm teasing you. What, what other observations do we see? Everything you guys have said is great. This is what I want for us to do. Okay, so boundaries, good. I see that it's going to go to the offspring after them. Very last phrase. Okay, yeah, so... Those are a lot of observations. As we, in our personal time of reading the Bible, what I would encourage us to do is maybe write those down. Just, I see this. I see that. Uh, You can do that in the margin of your Bible. A lot of Bibles don't have a ton of room for that. Or you can just do it on a separate sheet of paper um, or on your phone or any number of ways. And that'll just help you to really soak in it and internalize it more. 
This is not something you really do on the go. It's sort of devoted time to reading the scriptures. You're going you're gonna to do this. And then you'll start asking yourself the question of, okay, well, what does this mean? What does this mean? How do I, how do I interpret this? So what are some interpretive questions we have as we go? Uh, one of the biggest questions I have, and I don't propose to have an answer for it because I didn't do enough homework or research before coming, but all these places, Suf, Arabah, Tofel, Laban, maybe, the, maybe on the map there's some. Nah, not really. This, you wanna, yeah, you want to know who King Mog is. Well, I, or Og, sorry. Mog. <laughs> What are some other interpretive questions that we have? I see that year thing in the 40th year. I want to know what, in frame of reference to other years, what is that? So I would, I'd write that down. I have this question. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to figure that out. I'm going to study. Yeah. of questions do we have? Let's get down to verse 6. That's where it seems like there's more meat. The Lord our God said to us in Horeb, you have stayed long enough at this mountain. Turn and take your journey and go to the hill country of the Amorites and go to all their neighbors in the Arabah, in the hill country, and in the lowland in the Negev, and by the sea coast by the land of the Canaanites, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. See, I have set the land before you. Say, say again, Mark. How would you? How is it set aside for you? Are there people there? Is there going to be um, military uh, engagement? Sure. Yeah, good questions. I, I seem to see the Lord's faithfulness. See. I have set the land before you. Yeah, he had prepared it for them. This is for this is for them. Yeah. Why do they get to go to the land now instead of earlier or later? Sure. Yeah, it's good. Good question. What else as we work our way through verse eight? I see more faithfulness of God. Go in and take possession of the land that the Lord swore to your fathers. They're standing on the tip of what they had been longing for for years. For years. A lot of these are kids that are now grown up that wandered around with mom and dad for 40 years that now have their own kids. And maybe mom and dad, their mom and dad had died, but now this family is going to go in and take it. Imagine the emotion. Imagine the, the raw excitement they would have felt. Here they are, finally. The fear that they might have felt. Yeah. Yeah, because there had been times in the past where they had opportunities to go in and take it, and they freaked out. 
They're like, oh no, there's scary people there. There's lots of warriors. We can't do it. And they didn't trust that the Lord would fight with them and for them. Yeah. Wow. Did y'all hear that? Harrison said, just the fact that God speaks. Yeah, that is cool. It's a little frustrating that he doesn't speak clearly and audibly to us today, but guess what we have? The Bible, (laughs) right? We have this. They didn't have that. So, and the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Julie. It's good. Him what? Lisping to us? I don't know how theologically sound that is, but... (laughs) Sure, yeah, the voice, the voice of the Lord crushes trees. Yeah, yeah, the voice of the Lord's powerful. Okay, good. So these are all really good observations, and some of these things we've made are interpretations. Um, now, let's start to ask ourselves the bigger picture question of application. How do we apply it to us? What does it mean to you? Here's where reading the Bible and interpreting the Bible gets sort of tricky. Because some people will take this and they'll say, um, God is giving you that thing that you've longed after the most in your life. You've waited for years for it. God's going to give it to you. And they turn this into a sort of fortune cookie. Can we go there? No. Uh-uh. Yeah, that's called eisegesis, right? That's reading your hopes and anticipations and maybe personal convictions into the text. The text isn't written to you. Even though the word you is there, it's not you, Harrison, right? It's who? It's Israel. Yeah, it's, it's, it's ancient Israel. So how do we avoid those kinds of pitfalls of making that application? Hebrews, yeah. So the first thing you see is God's faithfulness. Okay. So what Elizabeth is saying is that because God is faithful, we see this principle or this character of, of his nature. Uh, he's faithful to the Israelites, his people. Elizabeth is drawing out the application that God is also going to be faithful to us, his people, who have trusted him for the forgiveness of our sins. Yeah, I think we can go there as Christians. I think that's a great application. Julie? I think it kind of shows as an example of how things are in God's time. Like, Elizabeth is saying, it's an example of how. Great. It's a great. Yeah, it's an example of how. They, they wandered for years, um, but in God's timing, they eventually did enter the land. Right. They weren't ready for it. Ready for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Callie. Kind of along the lines, um, I kind of grew out of that, that the Lord gives and takes away The Lord gives and takes away as he sees fit because he's sovereign. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm repeating you because we are recording this, um, but also just so we can all hear it. These are... These are great personal takeaways. But we didn't get them right away, did we? 
We had to spend a little bit of time in it. That's my goal. Read, interpret, apply. We do these three steps over and over and over and over. Because if we just start applying as we sort of read, we're going to miss usually the context. So um, we could spend all night here. I, I want to... I want to skip to a more difficult passage in Deuteronomy and then ask ourselves some, some tough questions. So turn to Deuteronomy 14. And look at, let's look at verses 1 through uh, 3 or 4 or 5. It's fine. So, you are the sons of the Lord your God. Well, that sounds great. I like hearing that. Thanks. You shall not cut yourselves or make any baldness on your foreheads for the dead. Anybody in here bald? Sorry, money. <laughs> this is not what this is about, though, right? Like, this isn't about people who are bald, right? Like, this is, and money, I'm not, by the way, money, I'm not saying you're bald. You're just sitting under that light, and you had your head, you had your head tilted up. So I was like, I was trying, you know what I mean? I had to find someone to pick on. Um, I wish Frank was bald. Any chance I get to make fun of Frank, I'll take it. But he's got. So you you shall not cut yourselves or make any baldness on your foreheads for the dead. Wow, what does that mean? I don't know. Let's keep reading. For you are a people. And you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. You shall not eat any abomination. Okay, what is that? Uh, these are the animals you may eat. The ox, the sheep, the goat, the deer, the gazelle, the roebuck, the wild deer, or excuse me, the wild goat, the ibex, the antelope, and the mountain sheep. Every animal that parts the hoof and has the hoof cloven in two and chews the cud among the animals you may eat. Yet of those that chew the cud or have the hoof cloven, you shall not eat these. The camel, I've never wanted to eat a camel, so that's fine. Um, the hare, the rock badger, because they chew the cud, but do not part the hoof, they are unclean for you. And the pig, uh-oh, I like bacon. And the pig, because it parts the hoof, but does not chew the cud, it's unclean for you. Their flesh you shall not eat, and their carcasses you shall not touch. Let's stop there. All right, so here you are. You're in um, some sort of context with other, other people, and many of them are non-Christians. And they come to you and they say, hey, do you eat bacon? And you say, what? Of course I eat bacon. Yeah, I'm American. <laughs> Turkey bacon. My mom fed us that junk when we were kids. It's awesome, said nobody ever. Um, and somebody comes to you and they say, hey, do you believe the Bible is true? And you as a Christian say, yes. Yes, I do. Do you believe the Bible is literally true? Um, yes, I do. But what do you mean by literal is usually the question that you should ask right away. Because what they mean is usually something different. And the word literal, oh gosh, there's so many different ways people use it. So always ask that, by the way. What do you mean by literal? And what they'll usually mean is, well, do you believe that the Bible is God's word to you? Like specifically, you know, the revelation of God himself to you. And you, you'd have to nuance it and say, I do believe that the Bible is God's revelation and that it does speak to human hearts, myself included. But the instructions in every part of the Bible aren't written to me personally. And that would hopefully defuse them from saying, well, if you're a Christian and you eat bacon, then you don't actually believe the Bible. You ever seen that before? Have you ever encountered that personally? Yeah. 
And this is one of the biblical passages that maybe if the non-believer was smart enough, they'd go to. I'm not saying they're not smart, but they don't usually have a framework for the book of Deuteronomy. So um, if, if they knew the Bible well enough, though, they may go here and say, how do you make sense of that? So what would you say? You have to learn their customs back then. What is it that you're pointing us to there, Julie? As as Context, right? Yeah, I'm not even sure what the baldness thing yeah. is about. <laughs> okay. Okay, so you're saying it sounds like a warning? Oh, mourning. Oh, mourning, yes. Shaving their head, okay. Yeah. Um, let's, um, that, won't, that won't come up as much in a conversation. That might just confuse them as much as it confuses us. Let's talk about the animals, what they can and can't eat. Did we have any pork tonight? I don't think so. Most of it was just chicken. Pork filet? Pork filet? Yeah, these sandwiches didn't have bacon on them. So what, what, would, you, what would you say with regard to this, this, hey, you can't eat the pig? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so Sarah's pointing to Acts chapter 10 where Peter um, has a, a dream, a vision, and it's in reference to Cornelius, who was a, a Gentile, a non-Jew, and there were all these animals flying around. I'm summarizing this, this chapter. And in the dream, he's commanded to eat. And he's saying, no, I would never do that. I'm a good Jew. I, I don't eat unclean things. And there's, no, eat. And again, no, I'm, I'm a Jew. I don't do that. And, no, eat. And finally he goes, oh, I can eat these because the Lord has pronounced them as clean. There was a bit of a a double entendre there, maybe a double meaning in that this was God revealing to Peter through this vision of animals that the Gentiles were now to be enfolded into the people of God. And I think it also was connected to the fact that they could now eat pork. But, but, um, what, what if you didn't have that verse on hand, that section of Acts chapter 10, and you just had Deuteronomy? You, weren't sh- you didn't know that, that that story existed. What would you say? I want you to feel the way, I want this to feel kind of yucky because it, yeah, not, not bacon. Bacon's not yucky, it's good. But I want you to feel the weight of somebody's really pressing you for like, hey man, you pick and choose what you believe in the Bible. And this is one example of where you don't, you don't believe all of your Bible. You could say, no, I do, I do believe the Bible is true and that God revealed this specifically to Israel at a certain time in history, a certain people group of which I'm not part. So it was, it was very true for them to apply this to their lives like that, but it doesn't apply to me in the same way because I'm not them. I don't live in that culture. I don't live in that context. So read, read this passage in context. Julie. 
<laughs> That's great. That is what you meant. The Egyptians used to shave their heads and eyebrows? Oh, yes. Yeah, pre, pre-ISIS. Okay, so, yeah, Harrison. Sure, sure. Interestingly enough, um, so what Harrison is asking is, what about human sexual conduct, specifically related to homosexual behavior? The Old Testament seems to speak pretty strongly against homosexual behavior. Leviticus is one of the classic examples, and that's usually where this conversation comes up, is there's prohibitions for eating shrimp and bacon, which I love together, um, in Leviticus— and then the, in, the, in the next clause, essentially, there's prohibitions for homosexual behavior. And so your secular friend who says, well, you eat bacon-wrapped shrimp, but you condemn homosexual behavior as, as not a legitimate expression of sexuality, you're inconsistent. You can say, well, no, and here's why. There is a distinction in the law of Israel between the moral law and the ceremonial law. And this is something that gets overlooked all the time by non-Christians and Christians alike. The ceremonial law was something that marked them as distinct from the rest of the ancient Near Eastern nations. The ceremonial law included the dietary restrictions, the don't wear clothes of two different types of fabric. That was part of the ceremonial law. The moral law uh, was also to set them apart from the nations, but it had a longer uh, durations to it in that this was God's expectation of humanity that sexuality be expressed through a man and a woman in a marriage covenant. And so this silly notion of, well, you eat bacon and shrimp, but you, um, you condemn homosexual behavior as wrong. That's inconsistent. No, that's just not reading the Bible correctly. That, that's actually them picking and choosing the, the discussion instead of actually reading Leviticus or Deuteronomy in context. The other problem with that is that all of the um, uh, all of the New Testament texts that talk about human sexuality just assume that any deviation, homosexual behavior, or or whatever else, is falls under God's condemnation of wrongful expression of sexuality. That it be a man and a woman in a marriage, and anything else is what the New Testament writers call pornea, which is the kind of a junk drawer term for just any, any kind of sexual sin. Uh, pornea, what do you hear in that word? Pornography, right? That's kind of where we get that, that word. So um, you can point to the New Testament and say, Jesus, Paul, um, they all point to Genesis 1 and 2 as the, the archetype for how humans should express themselves sexually, and that is in a, a marriage relationship. Julie, you had a question? Oh, I'm sorry. I thought I saw you raising your hand. Okay, Harrison, great question comes up all the time, all the time. So be prepared for that one. I hope I'm not turning this into an apologetic seminar, but, but when, you, when you start to live out your faith and you do all of life all for Jesus, people are going to ask you questions about what you believe about the Bible, and that's part of why we're here. So, I can't help but say, too, that you have to read the Bible in the whole context and the whole counsel of God. Yeah, you do. You have to read the Bible in the whole context. 
the whole New Testament right. interpreting the Old the, in light of Christ. And what the New Testament does interpret the Old, and the New Covenant um, fulfills what the Old Covenant's pointed forward to. Yeah, it's good. So all those ceremonial things and all of that was pointing to that division between Jew and Gentile, like we right, about. right. And so, and all the sexuality, all of that unclean and clean. That's what I mean about him listing. He took all those years to show us in Christ. Right. Um, the other thing is when somebody points to a passage or a verse in Leviticus or Deuteronomy or wherever and they say, you're inconsistent, you, you don't live this verse like it seems to say that you should, what they've done is they've fast-forwarded to the middle of a movie, right? And they've gone, and they've sort of cherry-picked a verse. We avoided doing that tonight just by reading the first section of Deuteronomy. Because what did we see when we read that first section? This is Moses' words to Israel. But if we didn't have that, if we, if we didn't read that first section of Deuteronomy and we just jumped into the middle of Deuteronomy, like chapter 14, we would feel confused. Like, who is this written to? And who is it written by? And in what historical setting do they find themselves? We don't have any of that when we just jump to the middle. So in your personal time of reading the Bible, I would say as much as possible, start from the start and just read through the book. You don't normally have to do that with like Proverbs and Psalms um, because they don't have as much historical contextual information surrounding them and they don't follow a chronology necessarily. But um, the rest of the books of the Bible are helpful to read from start to finish, much like you watch a movie, much like you would read any other book. So, okay, we're going we're gonna to review a couple things. We're done with Deuteronomy for tonight. Um, there are a couple things. If you are taking notes, I would say write these, write these few things down. These are things that I try to keep with me as I read the scriptures. Um, first thing, like we said, observe, interpret, apply. Step one, observe. Step two, interpret. Step three, apply. Or essentially, step one, what does it say? Step two, what does it mean? Step three, what does it mean to me? We've always got to ask ourselves those questions in that order. What does it say? What does it mean? What does it mean to me? Um, find the context. Find the context. How will you do this? A couple ways. Start from the start of the book. Read through it. Get the flow of it. The other thing is, if you want the, the detailed background info and the context, get a good study Bible like, like this. It'll, it'll give you quite a bit of that. Um, and then these are three phrases that I, I like to keep in my pocket because it helps me stay guided as I read the scriptures. A text cannot mean what it never meant. So again, a text cannot mean what it never meant. Whatever the author intended to say is what the text means. If you encounter somebody who says, well, it seems to say this, but it actually means something totally different, you go, no, no, because his words here have meaning to them. They're not arbitrary for you to just make up whatever you want it to say, right? And the irony in that, of course, is somebody is saying to you, it doesn't mean this, it means something else. 
you could interpret their words as like, I don't under, I, I understand your words to mean something else. And then they go, no, I'm trying to communicate something. You know what I mean? Like just pull the rug out from underneath them, flip it around and use their own logic against their own words. When we speak in any form through text message, through cell phone, through email, whatever, through person to person, we mean things with our words. And for someone to, to just say, well, I, I have the liberty to take words and make them mean whatever I feel like they mean to me personally, it does disservice to what you as the communicator are trying to do. You can't do that with the Bible either. So a text cannot mean what it never meant. Second thing, a text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. This was one of my favorite phrases in college. A text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. Essentially saying this, that if you take a, a, a passage out of the Bible and you remove it from its context and you just try to read it by itself, you are setting yourself up. It's a pretext for what we call a proof text. And a proof text is where you're just kind of throwing Bible verses at things to win the argument, to make the point. And that's not helpful. That's dangerous. So a text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. And then lastly, related to that same concept is this. Uh, Never read a Bible verse. I mean it. Never read a Bible verse. Read the verses around it. You read one verse by itself, sort of confusing. Read the verses around it. Even in Proverbs, read the verses around it. I think there are some places in Proverbs where, yeah, you can read just one verse and, and get the meaning and apply it to your life right away. But for the most part, all of the books of the Bible have this massive context all around them. Just like you're not going to zoom to one part of a movie and watch 25 seconds of it and then not watch the rest or the previous, the part prior to it. So again, never ever just read a Bible verse. That sounds kind of strange, but you guys tracking with me? You understand the, the purpose of that? Okay, and then lastly, and I tell my students this all the time because we, we go into even more depth. I make them do word studies and sentence diagramming and all kinds of things, and it becomes very academic. It becomes very um, intellectual, right? All up here in the head. And the danger in that is it can create a disconnect from the heart. And so my encouragement to us is don't let that happen, Remember that this is not an academic textbook, but this is God's word. And it has this unique ability to speak to our hearts unlike any other book. And we don't want to get far from it and letting it shape us, our hearts, our souls, and replace that with just studying it academically and intellectually. That's the danger. Uh, And then lastly, this is the close of our class. This class is meant to lead into the next class, which is a four-week series taught by our two other pastors, Josh Prather and Cody Kimmel. They're going to they're gonna take you guys through a class on how to live the Bible for all it's worth. That will start in two weeks, so not next Wednesday, but the following Wednesday, the 25th. Email Josh or Cody, and they can get you the info about what time and where. I don't think they're going to start here. They're going to start somewhere else. But, um, so it's... Stephanie, is it, isn't it next, isn't it in two weeks that it starts the 25th? 
Whoops. I'm, oh, you know what? We had originally planned for it to start on the 25th. Okay. I'm sorry. That's totally my bad. I'm really glad you said that because that would have been bad. You would have emailed them though and they would have told you. So that's good. So it's going to start April 15th. Still email them and get the details. I would greatly encourage you guys to be part of that. Um, Josh and Cody are very capable communicators and very effective at what they do and just um, helping, helping us to live this out. Not just, this is the, this four week series that we did was sort of the intellectual part of it. The next four weeks led by them is going to be the application of that into your day-to-day life. And so please take it. It's, it's going to be great. Um, are there any other final questions or thoughts before we wrap up? We've just got a couple minutes. One question. Yeah, and no, it's great, Elizabeth. Thirty-one. For young, if you have young, well, even for ourselves continually, but we did that with the kids their whole lives, and it's Elizabeth is saying there are thirty-one proverbs, and you can match that to the thirty-one days in a month. Yeah, no, it's great. I I do that, um, and I found it really really helpful because it's just a it's a it's a, a way of guiding you. And it's full of wisdom. I told my students to do that. Um, that I have two students who are in their later stages of life. And I told all my younger students, you need to do that because you need wisdom. And y'all are idiots. These two are not idiots. Um, And then I felt bad. I was like, no, you're not idiots. But read Proverbs because a proverb a day keeps the foolishness away. So, yeah, it's good. Great. Well, guys, thank you for being here for these four weeks. We've enjoyed it. And uh, I look forward to getting to know more of you and hearing how God's word is shaping your lives. So let's pray and then we'll wrap up. God, thank you for your goodness to us, for revealing yourself to us in the word. It enlarges our hearts in faith and uh, it gives us great confidence in your faithfulness. We pray that as you reveal more and more of yourself through the scriptures, that uh, we would be increasing in joy and we'd be excited to share that joy with others. We ask that you'd help us to live faithfully for you in every area of our life. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.